Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody. This episode of Other People is sponsored by Words After War. Words After War is an emerging literary organization with a mission to offer fully funded opportunities for veterans, their families, and civilian supporters to share their stories. Words After War aims to build a supportive, creative community through writing workshops, studio retreats, and literary mentorships. The organization was co-founded by writers and longtime friends Brandon Willits and Mike McGrath, who aimed to change the national conversation around veterans' issues by including civilians in that conversation. Their first writing workshop launches this fall in Brooklyn, New York at Mellow Pages Library, and it's open to both veterans and civilians. The workshop will be led by writer and veteran Matt Gallagher, a former Army captain and the author of the Iraq War memoir, Kaboom. Matt is also a co-editor and contributor to Fire and Forget, short stories from the long war. Both of these books are published by DeCapo Press. For more information, go to www.wordsafterwar.org. That's wordsafterwar.org. They also have a Facebook page and a Twitter. Words After War, it's a literary organization for veterans and civilians. Go and support it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is invisible to the naked eye. This is audible. To the naked ear. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy, uh, and I am here in Los Angeles, California, and I have a very good show for you today. Curtis Sittenfeld is the guest. She's the author of the best-selling novel Prep, uh, the best-selling novel American Wife, and her latest effort, uh, now available from Random House, is called Sisterland. You can get it today in hardcover and uh, ebook formats, and the paperback edition is due out in the spring of 2014. So uh, very excited to have her here. Curtis and I will be talking in just a moment. Uh, first, uh, I would like to read uh, some selections from my diary, my uh, journals, and also uh, from some personal letters 
that I wrote uh, many years ago. Uh, this was kind of a project of mine back in uh, like 2010, 2011, and it now occurs to me that perhaps I've mentioned this before. Have I talked about this? Have I done this bit? <laughs> I can't remember anything. Anyway, uh, I embarked a couple of years ago, I embarked upon a painful process of self-reflection and self-discovery by going through all of my old journals and uh, a uh, voluminous stack of old letters that I wrote uh, as an aspiring writer and a uh, flailing human being in my 20s. And I think initially I, I, I was wondering if this might be a book, some kind of memoir. I toyed with that idea that it was an experimental memoir. And uh, the original working title was How to Fail. But I never got around to publishing it. And uh, for your entertainment, I have carefully extracted some of the most humiliating excerpts, which I'm going to read now. And uh, like you know, once again, what I'm about to read to you is lifted directly verbatim from my old journals and some old letters that I wrote in my 20s. So here we go. A million different ideas. Fear plus desperation equals survival. I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to write a novel. The digital brain what computers are doing to my consciousness. Herman Melville's lifetime book earnings, just over $10,000. Possible title, I'm Not Me. Most writers are miserable, even Twain. Even Twain extremely bummed out at the end, dying all alone in that pitiful white suit. To live to the age of 109, to tell the world the truth through false teeth. Maybe I should buy a TV. The book should look distorted when you're right up close to it, but then, cohesive and compelling and beautiful, the farther you move away, like an abstract expressionist painting. It's an abstract expressionist painting of Andy, War <laughs> of Andy Warhol's world. Critics will probably hate it. You have to be prepared for that. The readership might not be huge at first. And then there's that false feeling, too, that to sell a book, to somehow, quote, make it big, would wash away all the self-doubt and dissatisfaction in an instant. But of course, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's dead wrong. That's not going to validate me. It'll feel good, sure, but it's not the quick fix that it's often cracked up to be. It's just a band-aid for a gaping wound, an extra strength bear for an aneurysm. 
Please don't tell me I'm at the mercy of my DNA. Protagonist has an ironic barcode tattoo on his left pectoral. <laughs> All of my worries are average. Possible title. Fiction. Possible title. Book. Uh, okay, so there you have it, guys. Some actual excerpts from actual journal entries and letters that I actually wrote in my actual 20s. How do you like that? Was that, uh, was that enjoyable? Was it frightening? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today, once again, is Curtis Sittenfeld. Uh, what a great pleasure to have her here on the program. Her latest novel, Sisterland, is now available from Random House, and it will be, uh, be out in paperback in the spring of 2014. So uh, I think you're going to like this conversation. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Curtis Sittenfeld, the author of Sisterland. I am in St. Louis, Missouri, where I live. I'm sitting in my office, which is uh, inside my house, and um, let's see, I have my feet on my desk, and although I'm not wearing shoes, I'm wearing Lululemon socks that my sister-in-law gave me, which to me, those are fancy socks, and I, I, I there's, a, um, there's like an orchid plant that my parents sent to my husband and me, because our birthdays are really close together in August. Wait, when's your birthday? August 23rd. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm I'm August 1st. So, like, everyone in my family is, like, an August birthday, it seems I know. Like. Do you know, I actually once heard that August is the most common birthday month. I wouldn't doubt it. I think, and I, because my daughter was born in August as well, um, and uh, I think there was something like that. At the hospital, they were saying that, like, September 21st, like, has the most births because everyone conceives, like, on christmas or something it's like that kind of thing you know the holidays really? that's that's surprising that doesn't that doesn't seem like the logical time to you know to i don't know but <laughs> i guess that's how, how whatever floats people's boat yeah fine. well you know it's like i think like people i don't know what it was i don't think i was actively thinking like well it's the holidays it's time to conceive a child but <laughs> maybe it's like uh holiday stress i don't know i feel awkward yeah all of a sudden. yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we've just kind of cut to the chase, haven't we? <laughs> Brad, tell me about your conception. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, you're in St. Louis. I thought, did I have it in my head that you lived in Washington, D.C. for a while? Um, it, it would be correct if you had that in your head. So I lived in Washington, D.C. from 2002 to 2005, and I... I lived there when my first novel prep was published. Okay, and then that was, and then you were also, I guess, like either by happenstance or like consciously re uh, researching uh, American Wife via that experience. It couldn't have hurt to to be in Washington. Sort of, yeah. I actually, well, so actually, the the funny part was I went to Washington to be the writer in residence at St Albans School, which is you know a boys. Uh, prep school. I don't think a prep school ever calls itself a prep school, but it's a, a boys' independent school. Um, that's, and where, that's where uh, Gore Vidal went and Al Gore, and right? That's true. That's true. That's exactly right. I mean, it's kind of, it's one of those schools that's known as, like, the sons of senators go there, and, you know, technically a few sons of senators go there, but then a lot of people who are not sons of senators also go there. But yeah, I mean, there's a, there's tend to be a few recognizable names at a time there. Um, anyway, I lived, I was the writer in residence and I literally lived in the boys dorm. Although what I always tell people preemptively, cause I think, I feel like it's what they're wondering. I did not share a bathroom with the boys. I had like <laughs> a little apartment. I did. The apartment had a, um, a mini fridge, but it didn't have a kitchen. So I did eat a lot of meals in the dining hall. But anyway, so that, the happenstance part, actually, it was sort of a coincidence that that was where I finished writing prep because it wasn't, I mean, I went to boarding school myself and I would say the setting of prep is much more the boarding school I went to than St. Albans, but it was, it was sort of this strange coincidence of being back in the prep school world. And then I didn't start, I guess I started American Wife, uh, maybe 2006. Like I wrote it, I wrote it very intensely and very quickly. Um, and I think that I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to write a novel set in, you know, set partly in DC if I hadn't lived there. Like it did make me, you know, I would go running and I would see uh, at the time, you know, Dick Cheney's vice presidential motorcade going down from the Naval Observatory. And so, I mean, it, it was sort of in the air I breathed, although at the same time, I was a teacher living in a boys' dorm, and so it wasn't like, I mean, I was very much not part of Capitol Hill, you know? So it's, and so, so yes and no in terms of being influenced by the politics of D.C. Did you, did you mix with, like, I mean, just, uh, I don't know, the, the elite of D.C. somehow, either through your teaching work or socially? Um, no, I, I would say... I definitely did not mix with the elite of DC. I mean, the, the people. I mean, not not that I wouldn't have liked to, but you know, I was. I, I made. I had like a stipend, which, and I have to say, I love St. Albans. I feel like I could I could stun you if I told you how modest the stipend was. Like really, the. Um, you know, the sort of great gift of being the writer in residence at St. Albans is that you live in this beautiful setting, like you're right next to the National Cathedral. and um, But anyway, you're, it's a pretty, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a position that you have at a relatively early point in your career, I think it's safe to say. And so, yeah, my life in D.C. was extremely unglamorous. And I moved out of the dorm after the first year and then into my own apartment. But my life was still pretty modest. But, I mean, it's like, like the year I lived in the dorm, 
you know, the other teachers and I would be like basically in our pajamas watching the OC or, you know, it was just like whatever. I mean, there, I guess there were a few times that I would kind of come within like spitting distance of fancy DC people, but not not very much. Okay. Yeah. I just had uh, Mark Leibovich on the show who wrote that book, This Town, which is yeah, like, yeah. Which is like really uh, juicy and kind of Gore vidal in its tone. Is that yeah, is Gore, yeah. is Gore Vidali like an actual adjective? <laughs> I I, well, now it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, my husband actually just read the the Mark Leibovich book. I'm actually his um, his sister has been my editor like years ago. His, his sister's named Lori Leibovich, and she she um, I don't know as you might or might not know she she is an editor at the Huffington Post, and she was my I would when I was writing prep I would freelance for Teen People. R.I.P. Teen People. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I miss was, it. I miss was, it so much. I... <laughs> we we all do. Um, I actually, the funny thing is, uh, I don't know. I one of the most famous people that I've ever interviewed, which again is not saying much. I I can I think I can definitely count on two hands the number of famous people I've interviewed. But one of the most famous ones, I always I always can't remember his name. Was for Teen People. It was. The pianist is it Lang Lang? That's a tough word, by the way. I always struggle I, with it. it, it isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? I know. I wonder. Yeah, actually, one time I think in third grade, the teacher said it, and I had this like giggling fit that yeah. I've I still am recovering from. Anyway, so 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 actually, I feel like I was closer to fanciness as a um, freelancer for teen people than <laughs> and as a resident of Washington. Wait, but DC. who was who was the pianist? Oh, so is his name? Long Long or Lang Lang? Do you know who I'm talking about? No. Should I? I... Yes, you should. He's super <laughs> famous. Really. I mean, I know nothing about classical music. By the way, have you read Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon? No, but I, I, uh, I've I wanted to. Like, it's been on my radar, and I think I, like, I, I was going to try to get him on the show, but I felt like that's, like, super intense, and I wanted to make sure I had, like, really good context you know, for, yeah, for that you kind should, of okay, you should have him on the show and you should read the book. It's the best book I've ever read and I'm completely obsessed with it. Okay. That's and a- it meant, the reason I just brought it up is that one of the chapters, you know, it's, it's all, so just in case any of your listeners are not familiar with it, it's, um, the premise is that he spent 10 years reporting about children who are, who have identities different from their parents or like sort of situations or conditions that they didn't inherit from their parents. So it could be deafness, it could be autism, um, they could be transgender. And he devotes each chapter to one of these situations. And and the chapters are incredibly well reported and researched. And he interviewed like tons of families and sometimes visited them repeatedly over many years. And there's one chapter on prodigies and he specifically focuses on piano playing prodigies and the, the super famous pianist whose name I am not sure how to pronounce. I almost feel like I should like look it up on my iPhone while we're talking is, is featured. And it, it just t- it talks about sort of like his relationship with his father and all this stuff. So anyway, that's, that's very tangential, but that's why I mentioned it. And it, everyone listening to this should like, when you, the minute you finish this podcast, you should you should leap up and go by far from the tree and read it. Okay, and so you mentioned uh, interviewing famous people, and I know you interviewed Michelle Obama for Time, right? Yes, so she's okay. one of the others. See, I, so I, I, we, I could present my life in this way where, like, it seems like I've 
you know, it's like it's like someone who knows like two sentences in French, and like if they're the right sentences for the context, you might think that I'm fluent. So I could probably I could trick you into thinking I spend most of my time interviewing famous people, even though I don't. But yes, I have interviewed Michelle Obama. Okay, so dish a little bit. You did this for time, and I can kind of see how the how that would happen, you know, because you wrote American Wife, you're a good, you know, I can see how the magazine would have positioned that. But like, how did it happen? And like, what was she like to be with uh, in a room? Did, were you in a room with her? Or were you on the phone? I, yes, yes, I was in a room with her. So it was actually she had not yet become first lady. It was in 2008. And it was I guess, actually, it was the Democratic Convention in Denver. I was there. And it was were you? Yeah, I was wandering around for like a couple of different magazines and, and the Huffington really? Post. Really? Yeah, I was in like. A... <laughs> That's so funny. It was fun. Well, the funny thing is, I was actually, um, you know, like three months pregnant just at the end, for the first time, just at the end of my first trimester, and so on, on. I think on the last night, I ran into this journalist that I know. And he said, I, I said to him, I haven't attended a single party. And he said, I haven't attended a single speech. And <laughs> just both just sort of like looked at each other and thought almost, I think we thought like, who are you? Um, so, so I did, I mean, I was very focused on like reporting on Michelle Obama, but I was not, I was not doing whatever a hobnobbing, like literally, I think the night that Bill Clinton spoke, I went back to my hotel room and like, <laughs> like ordered potato skins and like ate them in bed, you know, like it, it wasn't pretty. Um, and it was also, of course, as any woman, you know, who's, who's been pregnant knows like three months is exactly when you're like getting kind of chunky, but like, you're not going to tell people, especially strangers that you're pregnant. So like your clothes don't fit, you know, it was just like, like I felt like I was like, one button away from <laughs> like my, my outfit kind of like unfolding before me or like unraveling <laughs> anyway. So, okay. But back to Michelle Obama. So, so American wife was actually published like the, the democratic convention and the Republican convention were back to back. Um, I think the Republican convention was in Minneapolis and I didn't attend that. Did you? No, I didn't. It was, I think it was right after or no. Yeah. Yeah. Was, it, was, it, was, it was, there was the weekend. So, the Democratic convention was like, say, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then on Friday, or was it, is that right? I, just, I think it was, yeah, Friday or Saturday, they announced that Sarah, that McCain has picked Sarah Palin. I was just going to say, I was, I was at the Denver airport flying back to Los Angeles when like that news came through and I was like, who the, who the hell is she? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I remember because well, the funny, so, so actually American Wife was published, I guess, that Tuesday, the the Tuesday of the Republican convention. And I think this sounds so disingenuous, but it's actually true that I, to this day, I don't know, I guess because I haven't asked, I don't know how strategic it was on my publisher's part to publish American Wife, which, you know, is a, this fictional retelling of the life of Laura Bush uh, during the, the Republican convention. But as it happened, I think people thought that that would be sort of this, you know, boring convention and <laughs> full of like old white men or something. And then when, when Sarah Palin was picked, uh, you know, every, everyone kind of went crazy and there was so much to talk about and to figure out who she was and all this. But I think, I think there was probably <laughs> in certain quarters, people felt like who cares about, you know, a novel that's about a first lady when, when there's this, like all this juiciness going on with the vice presidential candidate. But anyway, but to answer your question about Michelle Obama, um, 
so so Time, an editor that I knew at Time magazine, approached me and basically said, would you be interested in writing about her? And so I, I sort of, you know, this sounds creepy. I followed her for a few days. I mean, with the kind of permission of her, her team, where, like, I would go to hear her give speeches during the convention. And then... Uh, I sat down with her, you know, relatively briefly in like this sort of sitting room of a hotel room. And, and the thing that these are the things I, I kind of say about it. I mean, I'm a huge I, I have huge admiration for both the Obamas in different ways. But the thing that that I feel like, because, you know, a lot has been written about Michelle Obama. And in some, in some ways, there's not that much to say, but I'll, I'll say the things she's like, have you ever been in a room with her? Uh, well, I mean, I've been in the in the convention hall. Um, right, right, right. So, but right. I've, never, I mean, I've he, never been like in a room where I'm sitting in like a hotel room with her. <laughs> right, right. Well, okay. So she's she's kind of shockingly tall. Like even though you know she's tall, she, I'm I'm five eight, and I felt like she towered over me. Like she's and she. The other thing, and of course, granted, I was you know secretly pregnant when I met her. But the thing that I feel like, <laughs> and this is almost the big misimpression, although. I sort of feel like bad as a woman even saying this, but uh, meaning, okay, so I'm about to comment on her weight, not the way you think, but I feel bad even commenting on her weight because it's like, who who cares? But it's like, I think she's much thinner than people think. Like, I think people are like, I like her because she's, you know, sporty and she's fit, but she's not skeletal. And she's, I don't think she's skeletal, but she was, she's very slender. Like, I thought she was very slender. Anyway, so those are the kind of superficial things. Beyond that, I felt like she was, she's dazzling. Like she just, she kind of like emanates, you know, (laughs) light and magic. And you feel like it was her destiny to be a very high profile person. And like in some ways I'm surprised that she's, in some ways I am and in some ways I'm not surprised that she's not more, doesn't have a higher profile within the White House. But she's just, she's like charming. She's really funny she's really down to earth she's really articulate in an unpretentious way um she's delightful like and and i mean she has that thing where i think a lot of women feel like i want to be friends with her which it's kind of like in your dreams you'll be be friends with (laughs) michelle obama but she gives you she's so charming and so down to earth that she kind of gives you the, the the hope or the impression that like in some parallel universe you could be right right well no, it's interesting because she's also like really tough i believe all of those things uh and i think like you know it's hard to say because when it comes to political people i think at some point you do become like a political professional you have no choice you know like right once right once your husband decides to to run for president, like you sort of, you either play the game or you lose, you know, I think. Right, right, um, right. So like, do you ever, did you ever find yourself wondering like, God, is she just like gaming me? Is she good at this or did it feel genuine? Well, I don't think, I mean, I think for somebody to be good at talking to reporters, it's not, it's not either or, you know what I mean? Like, right. yeah, there are things that they kind of have to do or have to say or like like one of the first questions I asked her because again I had been following her around for a few days I had heard her give the speech the same speech repeatedly to where I felt like I could give it and I said do you get bored giving the same speech and she was like oh yeah you know <laughs> so it's like she wasn't I, I do feel like she seems very sincere I mean it's sort of like I'm sure that she or any really visible person 
Like maybe they feel like I'd rather not be talking to a journalist. I'd rather not be on a panel. I'd rather not be giving a speech. You know, like I'd rather be sitting at home or whatever. And it's like, but that's not. I don't think it's like fake to to still be well mannered or energetic, even if you wish you weren't there, or you'd rather be doing something else. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. It's like you're professional. Like it's you know sometimes you have yeah, to turn yeah, it on. Yeah. So yeah, ha- yeah. So uh, have you ever been in a room with Laura Bush? I guess that's like an, a, a, a natural question to ask since you wrote this kind of like Ramona Clef about um, her. Like, what's the right, right, What's right. the deal there? Have you ever been within like arm's reach of her? or No. <laughs> those, the answer to those two questions are different. I have never been in arm's reach of her. I have been technically in the same room with her, although it was like a huge auditorium. So there's a. There's a speaker series through a school here called Maryville University, and the way they sell the tickets is, in the, you know, like like let's say on you know seven nights over seven months there'll be like high profile speakers, and you have to buy the whole series, and so if you want to go to any of them, and so I bought essentially the entire series. To go hear her, so and I think it was also all the other people were like Thomas Friedman and actually Mia Farrow. To me, was the sort of the great support. Like she was incredibly charming and interesting in ways that I just I didn't know that much about her. She's but- un- she's unbelievable. She's unbelievable. Like I, like the amount of uh, giving, like the the amount of kids she has, and like all the. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Banana. I don't know how she does it, and then I know. Well, are you? By the way, I just I just joined Twitter in July, and she's like a Twitter fiend. No, like her live tweets of the Oscars were hilarious. She's like, oh, every, I didn't. Yeah, she was like I didn't. T- tweeting about who looked like they were on cocaine, and like she's just really irreverent and uh, you know funny, but. Uh, I'm fascinated by her and her life, and then the, her son. Uh, oh yeah, with Woody Allen, who is like he graduated from college when he was like 12, and like yeah, yeah, like yeah. He's, speaking of Ronan, is it Ronan? Yeah. Rowan? Ronan, 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 and he's like a super genius, which fascinates yeah. me. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, they they are a fascinating family. Anyway, she was one of the speakers. Laura Bush was one of the speakers in this series, and so she. You know, I heard she gave a talk, and then there was a question and answer session where it was, I think there were probably 6,000 people in the audience, and so people would write down questions, and they would kind of be screened. Um, and I actually I knew a couple other people in the audience who, who were like, oh, I wrote down a question about American wife, but they didn't ask it, which is <laughs> fine, you know. Like, but, but, yeah, so that was that was the only time that I've – breathe the same air as Laura Bush. And, and I feel like, I think the overwhelming feedback I get from people who read American Wife is that, you know, that it makes them think of her in a, in a more sort of complex way. And it, and it makes her look, it makes people like her and it makes them feel sympathetic to her. But which I, I think that, you know, the, the character based on her is like definitely positive but I also think if I were her, I don't think I would want to read American Wife, and I don't think I don't think I would have warm feelings towards me, the author. Like it's like I feel like I had a right to write that book, but I also I don't think that I think it would be unrealistic of me to think like, oh, I bet she'd really enjoy that and <laughs> like to be friends with me after reading it. Well, she's fat. I mean, I I kind of share your fascination with her, and I think that. 
I mean, like to, to begin with like superficial things like that body snatched kind of like, you know, the, the eyes, like sometimes to me, it looks like she's on something <laughs> just to be really like to be really blunt. And, uh, I, but I feel like there's a lot of depth to her that is sort of masked by that. And like, there's a lot of caricatures in, in the press or whatever, but you know, her past and, um, you know, her, I mean, frankly, her like literary leanings and stuff like that. Like, I think there's a lot more to her and I think that's what you were getting at and why I think your book delivered maybe more than some people were expecting. I don't know. Right. right. Well, I, I do think there was this tendency and obviously the Bushes are kind of, they have not been in the public eye that much since leaving the white house. But my impression was in the years that they were in the white house, that people would, if Laura Bush did something that reinforced their idea of her, they would pay attention to it. And if she did something that kind of contradicted their idea of her, they wouldn't pay attention. It was like she might, you know, basically like say that she thought, you know, Roe versus Wade shouldn't be overturned. Or she would say something that was essentially in support of marriage equality. And, and like people, there would be like this little, a little bit of chatter, but then people would kind of forget it. But then if she... I don't know what would be like, like something like if she's like talking about planning Jenna's wedding, like it would sort of be like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, she's such a kind of matronly mom. And of course that's what she spends her time doing and thinking about. And she's actually this really, you know, complicated person. And I would, I would say seemingly a deep thinker, um, which she was rarely given credit for. Well, you know, and like just to kind of shift gears into like totally superficial territory, I'm now remembering that I actually had a a Bush family experience of my own. Uh, <laughs> I was, I, yeah, I was in New York City, and I was there for like a job interview. This was a, a few years ago, and so I was like staying downtown, like near the f- not the Flatiron District. What's it called? Near the. Uh, Oh my God, I'm in St. Louis. I cannot yeah. help you. Well, whatever. It was like lower Manhattan. And I went, I was like, I want to do some exercise and the weather was shitty. And so there was like this spinning place, you know, like the, you know what spinning is like the box. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So I was like, I'm going to go to this spinning place that like the hotel concierge told me I should go to. And it was like one of these spinning places where they like light candles. <laughs> and it was like, and like the guy who's like leading the spinning class is like really like super motivational, like slash, like kind of spiritual. It was sort of creepy, but um, I'm on this bike and it's a packed class. Like you have to make a reservation to even go and every bike is full and it's like really dimly lit and there's candles and there's like loud music. And I'm on this bike, like, like wheezing, trying to keep up. And I, I look across the room and like directly across from me is Jenna Bush. And like, so it kind of ruined my class. Cause the whole time I was like, this is weird. Like I'm staring at her and like, I'm on the spinning bicycle, like trying to like, is that really her? And there's candles. It was just strange, you know, but. That's funny because did you feel like she was clearly distinct enough looking that you thought that's Jenna Bush and that's not, you know, or maybe that's another blonde woman who looks like Jenna Bush? Yeah, it was that that was the game. It was like, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? And then, you know, once it it did become clear, I was like, that's definitely her. But, um, you know, it took me a while to, like, feel confident in my sight. Right, right, right. So it's funny. Uh, I want to ask you, because like, I feel like, you know, your career so far, um, is a career that like just about any writer would, uh, kill for like, you know, like you write books that are really well reviewed that have uh, real literary merit, but also have managed to, um, like have real commercial appeal too. That's hard to do. 
And I think everybody sort of hopes for that who has like a literary bent. And so I'm wondering, uh, and then I look at your, your biography. Okay. Like uh, just basic bullet points. Um, you went to, was it Groton? Uh, Groton. Groton. Sorry. See, that sh- shows you how much I know. Uh, I know. That's, wait, where did you grow up, by the way? Uh, Indiana. So, and you're from Cincinnati. Oh, wait, where from, where in Indiana? Uh, like just suburban Indianapolis. Uh, my husband is from West Lafayette. Well, there you go. So, fellow. Know, so he would, he would, he would go to, um, like the sort of, you know, cool band shows in Indianapolis. Like that was like going to the big city. At the Vogue. I'm sure he went to the Vogue in Broad Ripple. You know. I'll ask him. And by the way, do you know about, he claims this, I think this is apocryphal, but the genesis of the term Hoosiers? Well, I think it was like, who's there? Well, he says that it's, people would get in huge fights in bars <laughs> and like someone's ear would come off and then someone else would hold it up and be like who's here no that's apocryphal (laughs) (laughs) i know i mean it's so irresistible but it's also even the fact that i'm laughing it's only because i don't believe it because if i did believe it it would be totally gruesome (laughs) anyway but we can go back to talking about my fabulous career but i'll just say that like to hear you say like you have a career that any writer would kill for like it's like that's such a in some ways that's such a kind i mean i i appreciate that and i feel like i'm super lucky and but it's also like I don't go around feeling like a person who has a career that anyone would, you know, like, well, let's, like we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. But it's, I, it's you, nice. It's nice to be, I mean, sometimes it's nice to be remind, like, yeah. I, it, sometimes when I'm being introduced for a reading, I'll think like, Oh, like I, I wish I felt like that person. Like, it's like, <laughs> you know, it'll be like, <clears throat> her books have been translated into 25 countries. And I'm like, I'm like the person who like, like, I'm like, I try so hard to, not wear sweatpants all day every day but then like i do wear sweatpants all day every you know like i'm like i'm gonna change by noon anyway sorry but we can we can keep going okay so groton vassar stanford the iowa writers workshop uh you you as a teenager in high school you won 17 magazines fiction contest you were a glamour magazine college (laughs) woman of the year while at stanford so you're a high achiever you've always been a high achiever like i want i mean uh, do you feel like you have like uh, more talent than most? I mean, do you? Lo- I know you just said you don't feel like you have this career, but like you- you've done all of these things, you've had these successes, you've published these books, um, they've been reviewed really well, they've sold well. Like, how do you do it? Do, do you oh. know? <laughs> I mean, well, okay. So I don't want to be. This is this is an, this is a very complicated kind of like multi part question. Um, one, I feel like I, I have been very lucky in multiple ways. And, and actually, in some ways, my greatest luck is probably like, it's not even exactly my writing, although I'm sure my writing is influenced by that. But it's like, I grew up in a stable family, like I had a great education. I mean, those are those are big things. And, and those are part of what I think allowed me to become a writer, even even though it's not like they destine you to become a writer specifically. But writing is obviously uh, a sort of, especially writing fiction, is like a precarious enough um, like career choice that people who I think face huge socioeconomic challenges, it's like they don't even consider it. Do you know what I mean? Sure, yeah. Um, so, so it's like, I definitely, and, and I don't, you know, I feel like whatever, whatever sort of 
pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is, I kind of did the opposite. Like, it's, you're right. I had a great education. Um, I mean, I, I was never, like, I never thought of myself as an overachiever. I, I, from a very young age, like from the age of maybe five or six, I always, like, as soon as I became literate, I loved to read and I loved to write. And I was always, you know, reasonably good at it. It's, it's such a subjective thing because, of course, like you can you can present the narrative you're presenting, but then you could also like hop online and and read reviews of my books that are like one star. I threw it in the trash, or almost like you know like whatever. Like I lit it on fire. Um, so any so so saying like if I say I think I have some writing talent, like it's like well not everyone agrees. Some people do and some people don't, but. Um, like I always had this particular interest in writing and even from a very young age, like I remember being in fourth grade and I had worked on this elaborate short story and like standing up in front of the class and reading it. And I was sort of recognized for being able to write. And, you know, in high school, I joined the literary magazine, I joined the newspaper. And then when I was in college, I worked for the newspapers and, um, and so, but but there also were always things that I was really bad at. Like I really struggled with a lot of other classes. I struggled with foreign languages. I struggled with math and science, which I hate to say that because I feel like it's such a, you know, sort of negative stereotype of like females and or people in the humanities. Like I would I would love to be, especially like I would love to have been really great at biology or, you know, I have a lot of respect for people who, who do things that are practical and like know about things that are practical. Um, anyway, so yeah, but I will say, I think I'm a very hard worker. I think that I'm willing to take rejection. And so for example, like if I, you know, I write on a fairly regular basis for the New York times and some people, like someone recently was like, you know, you're a darling of the New York Times. You have something in there all the time. And for every, even now, I've had four books. Uh, it would be very, like probably, I'm trying to think, maybe maybe one out of three ideas I pitched to the New York Times gets in. And like sometimes they come to me and they have an idea and maybe it's something I feel like I can write. Maybe it's something I just feel like I don't really have an opinion on or it, it's the reporting it would require isn't something I can do time-wise. And so, but, but even now it's like, you know, to be rejected by the New York times doesn't phase me. And whereas I think there are people who take rejection very personally or they, they can't get beyond it. And I'm kind of like, I just pop back up, you know, like sometimes I'll get, I'll have an idea of an essay I want to write. I'll send it to an editor. The editor will reject it. And I'll like, one minute later, send it to a different editor at a different publication. Um, so whatever that is, like persistence or something, I have that, which is separate from t- talent or hard work. Um, and I mean, I, I guess another thing that that I think maybe I don't know. I, I, it's this is a, a strange, it's sort of hard for me to to talk about not like emotionally hard but I haven't I, I, I haven't like discussed it that much which is um, I feel aware that I'm writing for an audience and I think sometimes people can think like oh you're selling out or you're not you're not just like thinking of your singular artistic vision and and I don't think that's true I mean it's almost like like in a lot of ways I feel like writing a novel is like 
hosting a dinner party, which by the way, I'm like a horrible cook, but, um, <laughs> but it's kind of like, like you think of the way something will be received or like the way to make other people be interested or amused or, um, I don't know, like, um, and, and so I don't, you know, I, and I, and I think, okay, I would like to write novels that I would enjoy reading if I hadn't written them. And so I do think that, that it's like, I'm not just going to kind of try to write a really beautiful sentence so that I can feel proud of my ability to write a beautiful sentence. Like I'm trying to tell a story that engages other people. And, and I think there are some writers who don't consider their audience. I think that's true. And I think it, for, it, it seems crazy when you like just, just hearing you talk about it and it's so obvious, you know, why are you trying to publish if you're not trying to reach people and why would you not consider that if that's what you're doing? If you, if you just want to write pretty sentences that you feel proud of, then just like go to your journal, you know? Right, right, right. I think that, well, yeah. And, and, and I, I think that also like if that's your hobby, I think it's not like that shameful, you know, but, but there is a difference between writing for yourself and writing for other people. And, and again, too, because I started being published relatively early and because I went through my MFA pro and MFA program, um, I've gotten all kinds of feedback for my writing, including, so my first job out of college, my first real job was as a, um, reporter at the business magazine fast company and so i'm very used to being edited like it's not someone someone once told me an editor once told me that actually the people who are the easiest to edit are the most experienced writers and the people who are the hardest to edit are like sort of the newbies who are the most protective of like every sentence and and i do feel like i've just i've gotten a lot of feedback over the years and and of course there's definitely feedback that i reject in in you know whether it's been my classmates or whatever, but it's and, and I also I mean again someone could say you like you're writing by committee like if I send if I finish a manuscript and I send it to six of my writer friends and see what they say, and I don't think that's writing by committee. You know it's like thinking are they gonna misunderstand something that I didn't think they would misunderstand? Are they gonna see some hole in the plot? And there's also uh, if you show it to six people and five of them say like, "Oh, this is this part is a mess," then it's like you have to listen really carefully. Whereas if you if one person says, "I hated this part," you don't have to listen as carefully. Or like sometimes people, when you get feedback, people will say something that echoes something that you already thought, but maybe hadn't articulated in your own mind, or you know something that you knew was a weakness, but we're hoping nobody else would notice and then they do. So, and it's, and that's another thing. I feel like, I think that I'm hard on myself as a writer. Um, and you know, I revise a lot and I, I don't know, like, I don't feel like again, people have, and there are plenty of writers who revise a lot. Like I'm not alone in that, but then I think there are other writers who just like, they just finish it and they <laughs> they feel like it's done. You know what I mean? It's like it has the structure of a book, so therefore it's a book instead of just like really pushing it. Well, yeah, but what about like okay? I, I hear that, and I think that I think that's a good impulse. I mean, you want to be as like uh, careful as possible, but you can also run into the trouble of like not knowing when to stop noodling with the thing. Like, how do you like how do you intuit that? You know, do you reach a point where like your editor at your publishing house says, "Okay, it's done, step away," or do you just kind of instinctively know like my work is done here, it's it's ready? 
That's a great question. So I think that two things. One is if you are kind of taking stuff out and then putting it in, putting it back in and then taking it out again, that's when you should stop touching it. Because it's like if you're, if you're reversing the same decisions, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like more than once. Um, I think that you should feel like you've taken it as far as it can go. And so even though you know it's not perfect, you, you like it's like you, you don't, it's not clear to you what else to do or like how it should be improved. Um, even though you might then like look at it with fresh eyes and, and know exactly how it should be improved. But um, I mean, it, that, what you're asking is a really good question uh, because there is a fine line. And I, I also, I feel like I've known people who will write an entire book and then basically put it away, especially sometimes it'll be like before they've even had a book published. I think it's probably in most cases before they've had a book published because they feel like their first book has to be perfect. And it's kind of like, I mean, I think that you, one, you can't hold yourself to a standard of perfection because then you'll be very disappointed. It's almost like you just have to say like, if I think this is, good enough to go into the world. I've taken it as far as I can. Now it's time to like show my agent or show my editor or submit it to agents or submit it to editors. And someone, I'm trying to think who it was that said this to me. Like, I mean, if you've been working on a novel for a really long time, it can be, even though you desperately want to finish, it can also be a hard thing to let it go because like working on it is part of the structure of your life. And you're going to go into this different kind of this, this transition in terms of how you spend your time and what your emotional relationship with the book is once it's finished. And it might, I mean, it's like nobody might want to buy it or like someone might want to buy it and have you cut it in half and have it have a cover that you don't like or anything. So it's kind of like this scary next step. But, but again, if you want to be published, you have to submit your work to, agents who will submit it to editors. If you don't want to be published, I mean, I think you need to acknowledge to yourself whether writing is a hobby or a professional ambition. Right. Well, and it's funny that you say uh, what you were just talking about with respect to finishing, because I've had multiple authors on this show, and I know a lot of writers in my life who, like almost to a man uh, or a woman, will (laughs) say as they're finishing a book uh, that they feel like melancholy. Like it's actually (laughs) like you think it's, it's so uh, counterintuitive. You're working on this thing and all you want to do is finish it. And then you finish it and you're like, God, this sucks. It's over. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, so much of life is like that, right? Like, but, but I, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I think that because the other thing is you really shouldn't be a writer unless and you you derive some essential satisfaction from writing. You know, like you can find it difficult and challenging, but it's like you shouldn't be a writer because you think you're going to strike it rich or because you feel like it's like a cool thing to do. You know, and and so and that's the thing that I think I think because because writers can feel so frustrated or like disappointed in the work they're producing or disappointed in the pace or, or disappointed in the reception of the, you know, their book. But, but that you, you forget that actually, even though you're frustrated that writing it is this very engaging experience too. Um, and so I think that's why it's melancholy when it ends. And it's, it's also like, 
um, I mean, if you went to college and liked college, like it's almost the difference between being like a, a sophomore or a junior and then like getting to the end and being a senior where you're almost outside it. Like there's something about really being inside your own novel where, you know, you're far enough into it that you think you'll finish it, but you're not all the way to the end. And, you know, you, you're writing every day or close to every day and like the material is very immediate, but that's a really, that's a really, I think, intellectually satisfying experience to have. Sure. Well, you know, especially once the thing gets far enough along where you know, you have a, like a pretty firm grip on things. Like I, I think mm-hmm. most writers I've, uh, I know and have talked to will say that like the best part is like the, well, I don't know. I've heard people say the middle is the best part, but I think it's like, maybe from the middle to the end or like that last like home stretch is really satisfying because yeah you know you sort of uh you sort of know what you're doing at that point you're not like finger painting in the dark or whatever yeah yeah uh, from like 60% to 90% finish. right right so um twins and psychics you know like i like just to take your most recent novel uh, and to try to tie it to like your creative process like how the the you know, the ideas for your books, uh, realize themselves, you know, you can, uh, you know, you can look at Laura Bush and say, well, I was fascinated with her and the public response to her, but like, how did uh, Sisterland come to be in your mind? So the idea for the story for the book actually came from in the book, there's a, a one sister makes a prediction that there's going to be this devastating earthquake in the St. Louis area. And just to give a little bit of backstory, in 1811-1812, there were huge earthquakes in what's now the boot heel of Missouri. Um, and so, and people who live here know that. Although a lot of people who are not from Missouri or the Midwest don't know that. Did you know that, by the way? About the the earthquakes. Yeah. No, but I mean, I I do remember like growing up in the Midwest, like every once in a blue moon, there would be like a very minor like tremor or something. Right. I mean, these were these were definitely like they were a sort of like San Francisco level. I mean, I don't think they were as big as the 1906 earthquake, but they weren't that much smaller. But of course, it was a much in 1811, 1812 it was not a very populated area. Anyway, so I knew about those earthquakes. And then Someone, a friend of mine who had grown up in Jefferson City, Missouri, told me in, I guess he told me in 2008, that in 1990, there had been this um, climatologist who predicted that a very big earthquake would occur on or around a certain day in December 1990 in Missouri. And because of this history of earthquakes, people here, even people who are educated, they sort of didn't want to take the prediction seriously, but they did. And people kept their children home from school. Like a woman I know said that she and her her mother and her mother's friends sent their china out of St. Louis. People bought earthquake insurance. They would like put running shoes in the trunk of their car just in case you know they needed it. Like anyway, so. And I, as soon as my friend told me that, I thought, oh, my God, that would be such an interesting premise for a novel that someone makes a prediction and there's an immediate countdown and there's a certain kind of drama if the prediction com- comes to pass. And then there's like another kind of drama if the prediction doesn't come to pass. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if the story is told not from the, per- the point of view of the person who makes the prediction, but from someone who's close to that person who is simultaneously, you know, feels implicated and feels embarrassed and, you know, self-conscious about the attention that the prediction 
generates, but then also feels like, well, maybe, maybe it will happen and maybe it will come true. And so there aren't that many kinds of people who make predictions. So I thought, okay, instead of a climatologist, it'll be a psychic and it'll be told from the point of view of the psychic sister. So, so that was the, the sort of strange genesis of, of a somewhat strange book. Okay. So I have to interject uh, with a small anecdote from my own own life only because it's it's like uh kind of freakish and and uh, directly related to this topic but uh, and there's a public record of it which uh i think adds like a certain level of uh, authenticity to the thing because uh i'm not a psychic and i and i was reading an interview with you and i think you said you're not either but you're intuitive and you've had like i think a lot of people have had experiences that you know, might qualify distantly as psychic experiences, but right, right. I will have like, you know, not regularly, but like every once in a while I'll have like an, an absolutely uncanny premonition. Like I've known that like a friend distantly, uh, was pregnant and like I, I texted her the question, like literally as she was walking out of her like gynecologist's office with verification, um, you know, oh just like, God. yeah, just like, wait, how did the, how did the information present itself to you? Like you just, like, you, like I suddenly, you I'm, image? no, I was just sitting at my desk, but like both of the, the ones that I'm going to tell you about, like, first of all, there was that pregnancy one where I just like, she popped into my head and I was like, oh yeah, she's pregnant. And then I texted her and I was like, are you knocked up? And she called me and was like, what the fuck? She's like, I haven't told anybody. I just walked out of my doctor's office and I'm pregnant. And I was like, well, I don't know what happened, but I knew. And does she live in LA? No. Uh -uh. She, I mean, she lives not far, but she lives like, you know, a couple hours away, but that's, that is strange. Um, so, and then there's this other one, which is more directly uh, tied to your book, where uh, on May 1st, 2009, at 2.06 p.m., uh, I'm sitting at my desk, and I'm, I'm probably supposed to be working, but I'm on Twitter, which uh, you can now relate to since you're on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sitting here at my desk in Los Angeles, and like, just like on some weird impulse, I tweeted the sentence, I smell an earthquake which is so weird, but I just tweeted it like a, like a throwaway line. It occurred to me and like fully formed. It was like, I smell an earthquake uh, at 2.06 PM. And at six o'clock that afternoon, there was an earthquake uh, in Los Angeles, like in uh Westlake village or whatever. And like, I felt oh it. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. So it was like really, and I, I, I was like, holy shit. Like I wrote this down. You can verify it, you know, and people on, I mean, I think my, back when I was on Facebook, like I talked about it on Facebook and I linked the tweet and people were, um, sufficiently impressed. I mean, it was just really weird. I can't. And I can't... did you did, did you feel like it was it was freaky or like were you kind of pleased that you had? Oh, I was predicted? so pleased. I was so proud of myself. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I was like, that's like the one of the coolest things I've ever done. And by the way, you can you can Google that tweet. Just just tweet Brad or Google uh, I Brad Listy and I smell an earthquake. And it'll oh, I got you know. By the way, I feel like I smell an earthquake should have been the title of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, maybe in a maybe in a foreign edition or something. <laughs> Yeah, actually, probably like involuntarily in a foreign edition. That will be the title, but like it should should have been the intentional title. Um, that's fascinating. You know, I think any practicing psychic would tell you, like, oh, clearly you have gifts in this direction, and if you wanted to cultivate them, you probably could. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the thing is. I don't know where it comes from. You know what I'm saying? I'll just sometimes we'll just get very strong feelings. And they will often be right. Like, I think, I mean, the thing about it is that I don't want to oversell it either. And I think that, and this is a question I would pose to you with regard to, 
um, your life as a writer and then writing generally. But, you know, having a really good intuition, I think, is a common trait or a strong, you know, intuitive sense is a common trait uh, among writers. You know, being able to understand how people are feeling without them necessarily articulating it to you. Like, I'm good at that. I'm good at, I don't know, I think you're good at that, right? I mean, is it? <laughs> Thank <that's> what, you. <laughs> well, you know, okay, so I I basically agree with you that that's a common trait in writers, although I'm actually often surprised when I meet writers, like if they're total narcissists or, or almost like brutes or whatever, like I think, how can you sort of get at the truth of life when you are so obnoxious and who, like, wait, seem who, so who, who have you met? Unaw- that, who have you met? That's oh, a brute. you have got to be kidding me. How, how naive do you think I am? <laughs> you could have asked me that question maybe in like 1988 and I would have answered it, but like, <laughs> yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to consult. No, no, no. I'll have to consult my like psychic waves. Maybe I'll be able to figure uh, yeah, it out. I know, I know exactly. I know you don't even need to ask me any questions. Or like, you could ask me the questions, and then <laughs> you can just channel my answers. <laughs> I'll do that in the monologue for your episode. You know. <laughs> so, um, but no, that is interesting because I guess there are some people who kind of work against that trend. Like, I think that most of the novelists or most of the writers I know have some degree of that intuition. I don't know, like, but I guess everybody works in different ways. Like, I'm really people oriented and like what I've found, I guess, because, um, I know I've written a novel, but I'm also like, I'm really fascinated with like the writer behind the work, which is why mm-hmm. I think I, I do this show. And like, I love reading literary biography and, um, I'm fascinated by that story or like the story behind the story, which I think is, um, kind of like similar to what you were after with Laura, you know, the Laura. Bush yeah. Novel. Yeah. I think, I feel like I'm fascinated with the story behind the story too. And not always, in the most predictable way. Like another thing I think I'm kind of fascinated by, which I think is kind of what you're saying, is like almost like the person close to the person in power. You know, like not George Bush, but Laura Bush is interesting to me. Or I've recently thought like this will never happen for many reasons, some of them legal. But um, I thought like, oh, a fascinating novel would be about um, Gail King, you know, Oprah's best friend. Don't you think that'd be a riveting novel? Oh my god, yeah. No, my wife. That no publisher would touch with a pole. <laughs> I don't know. You never know. You know, somebody would probably touch it. I think that. Um, I think Oprah is super fascinating. I think Oprah. Oh, oh my god. So, yeah, yeah. On and, so many levels. Well, and I, mean, I and let me just say, by the way, I admire and like Oprah, and I think that Gail seems delightful. Like I wouldn't. And this is true of American Wife. Like I, I would not, I would never want to write some story or some novel that was like making someone seem hateful or like trying to humiliate. So you know what? I would only write about someone because I found them interesting. Like I would never have written a novel about Sarah Palin because she's not interesting to me. She's not appealing to me. You know what I mean? So it's not, I would never try to like shame someone by writing fiction about them. Well, okay. And I'm I sorry, think, what were you going to say about your wife though? No, she would let me She'd be the first oh. person to buy the Gail book. I'm just going to say. <laughs> really? Wait, Gail more than Oprah or? I just, I think, I don't know. We've had conversations and I just think the world is interesting. And like, uh, to your point about not wanting to humiliate, and because that's the easiest road, right? Like you just read right, right, a, a right, book right. about Gail and Oprah and how they're secretly lesbians and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think that uh, what's fascinating um, – my God, I just had like a, a 
thing where my brain forgot what I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> no, Maybe but, you could like psychically retrieve it. You could travel back in time. No, I think I'm distracted. Ninety by... seconds ago, I know that's okay. Um, no, but your with, wife, with, Oprah, with writing about people that. You're not writing hateful. Oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. I'm back. Um, it, it has to do like like my particular fascination, and you can tell me if you agree, um, is that you have these people, and a lot of times they're like you know not necessarily the one with the power, but they are they have close proximity to it and are sort of enveloped by it. And I'm really curious about like what circumstance does to these people. And so you can go back to Michelle Obama as well, who you sat in a room with like really as she was on the precipice of, uh, you know, entering into this really hermetic lifestyle, like living. Right. Like right. I, I read the Jody Cantor book, uh, about the Obamas. Oh yeah. 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 Which yeah. It's was fascinating. Like super fascinating. You just, you don't realize how isolated these people are. Yeah. And yeah. I think anybody who is in that role, like you're living in a museum essentially, that's like a public space and then you can't go outside without like 16 bodyguards. You can't do anything normal. And, um, your husband is like, you know, has his finger on like, uh, the button and is the most powerful man in the universe or whatever. And like, what does that do to a person's self, like sense of self, their personality? And like, what does Oprah, you know, who like has, is richer than, you know, beyond her wildest dreams and is treated like royalty essentially, and has been for a long time. Like, what does that do to a person? Like, it's not, yeah, it's not necessarily yeah. of her own volition. It's like circumstance create this, you know, creates this, you become famous at a level that, you know, few people are. And I don't know, I'm fascinated by like the machinery and what it does to a person as to po as opposed to like somebody who just behaves badly. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm totally, I, everything you're saying with, I totally, everything you're saying, I totally agree with. Like, I feel like, yeah, the, the machinery of fame and how like, who can say no to sort of more and more opportunities, but at the same time, there are these huge drawbacks that I think most people who are not famous don't ever take the time to, to think about, you know, like just that. And, and then I think there can also be something, I mean, this is total speculation on my part. It's not like I've experienced this firsthand, but I think there can be this way where maybe the more famous you become, I don't know, like maybe you almost feel the most real when you have an audience and like, what do you, what do you do in your downtime or uh, do you know what I'm saying at all? I do. Uh, you know, who just popped into my head is, is Barack Obama, because I feel like when he's giving those teleprompter speeches or when he's like in front, you know, the, the, I guess the point that I'm making is that the, the times where I feel like he is at his most vital is when he's in a room with people like quote unquote, ordinary people. And he's got something to play off of, but yeah. you know, otherwise all those like scripted moments and like, you know, the kind of. Uh, the formality of it. I don't think he enjoys that. <laughs> um, and I feel like if I were a public figure like that, like I would be so relieved to be anywhere near like real people, quote unquote, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's, but also like you can't, like you can only ever be your famous self to them. You know, like you can't, I don't know. I just, I think that that must be like a very, tough and undesirable like here i, I will say I, I don't know if other writers have ever said something like this to you but like i would never want to be as successful as like say stephen king or dan brown or something like that like i just feel like i don't know i think i think that you would you would lose 
a huge amount. Do you ever get recognized in public? Have you ever been like, hey, are you Curtis Sittenfeld in like the airport or anything? Um, a little, like a few times, but it's it might. I would say that it's usually contextual. So now that I live in um, St. Louis, where Sisterland is set, it, it kind of changes things. Where you know, someone like actually a mom at my daughter's preschool was like did you write that book and but it was like i mean we've been we've seen each other for the last like six weeks or something and then i think finally like it wasn't it wasn't some like stranger on the street or like one time i remember after prep came out i was in the philly train station and i was wearing a saint albans shirt you know which was i still taught at the time there and and she said, "Are you Curtis?" So it was, it's kind of like someone needs a nudge. I don't think that like my my <laughs> I, appearance. I was alone. wearing I was wearing a shirt that said Curtis Sittenfeld on it. <laughs> and... <laughs> do, you, do you know? I've actually for for years. I feel like maybe maybe we could do this as like some kind of fundraising event. I thought it would be really funny. Maybe it does even exist. I th- I think someone should make T-shirts that say "Nobody knows I'm a famous writer." <laughs> Do you think this would be awesome? I could sell them on the uh, other people website. <laughs> make a fortune. Maybe that's my, maybe that's my ticket. I give that to you <laughs> as a gift. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, I've had such fun talking with you. This has been great, and um, me too. I, I congratulate you on all of your successes. And uh, are you working on anything new? I guess that's the natural way to finish here. I am. Well, it's, it's, I'm working on something very strange, which did kind of fall into my lap, which is, um, so, so, you know, I, in the past, if you said, what are you working on? I would be like, Oh, I'm working on something. It's in the very early stages, but, um, the British kind of arm of Harper Collins, who has never been my publisher here or in the UK before, uh, initiated this project where they're commissioning six, contemporary writers to retell each of Jane Austen's six novels. And I think it's mostly, it'll be British writers. And the first one, um, Joanna Trollope is doing Sense and Sensibility. And it'll come out, I think this October. And they, they got in touch with me a couple of years ago and they said, would you be interested in <laughs> rewriting Pride and Prejudice? And it was one of those situations where like, I had never thought I should write a novel, you know, retelling Pride and Prejudice, but there's sort of like only one answer you can give when, when someone offers it to you. And and also, the thing that I feel like I should always say is like anyone listening to this could start writing their own Pride and Prejudice. You don't, like legally, it's not like you need permission or, or anything. And obviously, it's been done many times before. But um, like I, and, and so then, and you know, I kind of, I thought this, you know, it, it, like I, I think I felt like, oh, I should say no, but it's sort of, it's so tempting and it would be fun and, you know, I had loved Pride and Prejudice ever since reading it 20 years ago in high school. And um, and I talked to some of my writer friends and I said, like, does this seem like it's really selling out or whatever? And, and they were like, it just sounds like a lark and it sounds really fun. And so I basically, I feel like I'm writing Jane Austen fan fiction. Well, and, you know, but I think that's sort of, it's got to have some appeal because, you know, there's a structure that you sort of work off right. of. And, right. And I guess you're not, there's there's not, it's not really parody um it's not parody but it but it, it's it's like homage can you make it i mean can you make it new do you feel like the, i mean is that the challenge i guess is to find a way to like use all of that raw material but somehow you know have people come away from it feeling like they got uh, something that is unique unto itself 
Yes, that is the challenge. And the thing we haven't even this is a whole we'll we'll save this for next time, but I'm I'm obsessed with structure. And so in that way it's a really interesting, satisfying experience where I'll think, okay, what happens in chapter six and like what can I do to kind of, you know, change it and make it fresh and modern but still maintain the structure that she put in place it's, it's really it's kind of like dorky good fun it's, i, was I mean, gonna of say course, i was yeah. gonna say it's like it's like this like it's got to be really instructive to sort of disassemble somebody else's classic and then like try to reassemble it and to yeah see, yeah to see yeah it, it really I, it's, I think it would be like a fun i mean it would, it would actually be you know i've never thought of this and i'm not currently teaching but that would be a fascinating experience to have students in a writing class take apart like a short story, like say a Raymond Carver short story. So it'd be like, what happens in each scene? And then rewrite a story where all the same things happen, but it's a different story and then read each other's. Wouldn't that be the most interesting thing ever? Yeah. That's that's not a bad idea, you know. I, I, I feel like you and I might have to like go into business together. <laughs> I think like we're going to start a t-shirt company, and then we're just gonna, no. I'm going to my next collection of short stories is just going to be rehashings of Raymond Carver's classics. So. Oh my god, people love. You know what you should do? Actually, instead of it should be like the most famous story by every writer. So it's like check out, you know, it's like Lady with Pet Dog or whatever, like. <laughs> Or like, you know, well, oh my no, God. I, I, say I, ben, ben Greenman did a book where he wrote Chekhov stories, but he inserted like Lindsay Lohan. I may be, I may be totally misremembering <laughs> this, but it was like <laughs> famous people were the protagonists of Chekhov stories that he was using as models, which I thought was a clever idea. And I, th- I think huh, that's what I, I haven't seen that. That's, that would be, I have not read his fiction. So some, maybe it's a brilliant idea that someone else already had. <laughs> Which is usually the oh, case well. with all of my brilliant ideas. But... Oh, my God. I know. I know. I know. Now I have to Google your earthquake prediction, and I have to Google if there are T-shirts that exist that says nobody knows that I'm a famous writer. <laughs> well, I've given you a project. Uh, Curtis, thank you so much once again for talking, and uh, best of luck with this uh, Jane Austen book. Thank you so much. Okay, you guys, there you go. That is it. That is Curtis Sittenfeld. You can find her online at CurtisSittenfeld.com. She's on Twitter, where her handle is at C. Sittenfeld, and I believe she's on the Facebook, too. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Thanks to our sponsor, Words After War. Be sure to check out WordsAfterWar.org. Show those veterans a little bit of support. And, uh, hey, be sure to get the app, the free official Other People app, the official app of the podcast, available now free of charge for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can organize your favorite episodes. And uh, you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that. Do it. It's free. And uh, otherwise... That was fun. I enjoyed talking with Curtis, and I hope you liked uh, listening to it. As a random aside, just looking around my office, uh, I should have you know that I'm currently in one of those phases where I cannot stop buying books, and uh, yet I haven't finished even one of them, like even one of these recent purchases. So I just, you know, I keep adding books to the pile, uh, all of which are worthy additions, and then at the same time, publishers keep sending me galleys uh, for this program. Uh, and for the nervous breakdown and whatnot. So it's just this growing mass of books, if you can picture that. This growing mass of books uh, encircling me and closing in all around me. 
please remember that Wallace Stevens never saw Europe and that Yeats, at the age of 27, by his own admission, had never kissed a woman. That is it for now. Thanks for listening, you guys. Back on Wednesday uh, with another episode, another conversation with another uh, literary human being. And uh, until then, I will be... I don't know what I'm going to be doing. What should I do? (laughs) I will be uh, reading my old journals in the fetal position. I don't know what I'm going to be doing. This is the end, you know, of the program. And usually I have something to say here. Usually I have some sort of note jotted down so I know how to close because it's hard to know how to close. And I feel like if I start rambling... (laughs) 